I'm Dale Mason, publisher of Answers Magazine, and this is Creation Answers, a podcast of Answers in Genesis, featuring highlights from the award-winning Answers Magazine. In this episode, we're clearing up some misunderstandings, starting with God's Word as our foundation. We'll examine the truth about biblical authority, untangle some common misconceptions about creation, and admire an unappreciated little creepy crawly creature that actually serves an important purpose. Our first article, The Battle for Biblical Authority, reminds us how to keep God's Word as the foundation for our thinking in every area. Biblical authority refers to God's Word being the foundation and absolute authority for our thinking in every area. This means we take what we hear from culture, family, friends, the media, and even Christian leaders, and we compare it to the Bible. If we don't do this, we are susceptible to dangerous false doctrines and are blown about by every wind of teaching, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, and Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. How do we undermine biblical authority? Whether layman or theologian, we undermine biblical authority whenever we twist God's written word, pull verses out of context, or ignore scripture to support something we already believe. We're setting ourselves up as authorities over God's word rather than the other way around. God has given us his authoritative word that, with his spirit and the power of the gospel, gives us everything we need for all matters, including life and godliness. 2 Peter chapter 1 Verse 3. What is the result of straying from biblical authority? When culture or the church strays from biblical authority, everyone does what's right in his or her own eyes. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. Moral relativism runs rampant. The gospel is watered down and sin abounds. In my home country of Canada, and really throughout the USA and the Western world, good is being called evil and evil good. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Our culture has thrown off God's commandments, leading to sexual perversion, including homosexuality, transgenderism, rape, polyamory, and even pedophilia. We suffer the consequences with epidemics of STDs, abortion, fractured families, high divorce rates, and so much more. A culture unhinged from the moral foundation of God's Word is a culture of suffering. Individuals, families, and entire societies tend to prosper when they live according to the principles and commands of our Creator. Why is this topic relevant to the Genesis message? In Genesis chapter 3, Satan, in the form of a serpent, tempted Eve by saying, Did God really say? And Satan has used this same attack throughout history. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. In our modern era, Satan is attacking the foundation of our biblical doctrine, the early chapters of Genesis. Did God really say he created everything in six days? Did he really say that death came after sin? Did he really say he created us male and female? Evolution is a direct attack on the authority of Scripture because it tests what God says. No passage of Scripture is more attacked than the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Evolutionary ideas lead to the claim that because the origin account in the Bible isn't true, we can dismiss the whole Bible. Many Christians have tried to get around this by combining the ideas and saying that God used evolution and or millions of years to create the world we see today. But why should we stop at the world's origin? Why not compromise on what the Bible says about marriage, 
sexuality, gender, the sanctity of life, and more. We're seeing a generation of professing believers doing just that because they see themselves as the authority and edit God's Word to fit their ideas. Why are so many Christians intimidated by secular science? They don't understand that there's a battle over two interpretations, not a battle over evidence. There are two kinds of science, observational and historical science. Observational science is directly testable, repeatable, and observable, such as research in medical and technological fields. Historical science deals with the past, which is not directly testable, observable, or repeatable such as explaining how the universe came into existence. What you believe about the past determines how you interpret the evidence. For example, if you believe that billions of years of random chance and death yielded out the universe, you'll date fossils at millions of years old. But if you start with God's Word, you know that most fossils were laid down when God judged the world in the worldwide flood just over 4,500 years ago. Whether you start with evolutionary ideas or God's Word, you will interpret the evidence through that lens. When you properly understand a biblical framework for interpreting the evidence, you can confidently talk about the issue. How does allowing evolution in the church undermine our attempt to witness? Many Christians will compromise by adding evolution and millions of years to Scripture, trying to make the Bible and even the gospel more palatable to the world. But this tactic is really just removing the power and authority of the Bible. If we can say, well, that's not really what God meant there. When it comes to origins, how can we say that God means what he says about sin and the only way to salvation, Jesus Christ? How can someone talk to an unbeliever about the authority of Scripture? Unbelievers have a different foundation from believers. Islam, Mormonism, Buddhist philosophies, and atheism all are rooted in human reasoning. We need to explain that unbelievers think differently from us because they have a different foundation. But we also need to tell them that God's Word is the only sure foundation and explain why it can be trusted. That's where apologetics comes in. You need to know why God's Word can be trusted. No one is going to know the answers to every single question. And that's okay. We can admit, I don't know the answer to that. I'll look into it. It's easy to get distracted answering every objection people have and forget the gospel in the process but we should always use our answers as a way of directing people back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That article, The Battle for Biblical Authority, was written by Avery Foley. She's also a speaker and co-host of the weekly Answers News, a live program from Answers in Genesis. As Christians, we must ground our thinking in God's Word and be careful to discern truth from lies. Our next article is written by Dr. Dana Sneed. It quickly corrects nine common misconceptions about creation. Listen up. Have you ever heard that men have fewer ribs than women? Or that it never rained before the flood? What about the increasingly popular argument that the earth is flat? These and many other common misconceptions are often based on inaccurate historical data unsupported scientific models, misinterpretation of scripture, or mere speculation. As Christians, we must be careful to discern sound ideas from falsehoods so that we may honor Christ and proclaim the truth of his word, starting in Genesis. Whether responding to a misguided fellow believer or a hostile skeptic, we must address these misconceptions by using good judgment and appealing to reason, to observable science, and ultimately to God's word. 
The animals we see today look the same as animals at creation. You've probably seen artistic renderings of Noah's Ark and the Garden of Eden. They typically depict modern animals that we see today, monkeys, elephants, and giraffes. Such drawings reveal the faulty assumption that early creatures looked like the ones we see today. Many pictures show lions, tigers, and leopards on the ark. But these three cats come from a common ancestral cat kind, represented on the ark by a single pair. Genesis chapter 7, verse 2. These two cats would have contained the genetic information necessary for the various combinations we see today. Therefore, they couldn't have looked exactly like any of the cats we see today. Adam and Eve had light hair, fair skin, and blue eyes. Since the Bible doesn't describe Adam and Eve's appearance, we can't know what they look like. This lack of description has inspired many different ethnic depictions of the first couple. However, we can assume that they didn't express recessive traits, like light hair and blue eyes. As the parents of all people, Adam and Eve must have possessed DNA containing vast genetic information needed for a diverse human population. As such, they probably had brown eyes and dark hair, the dominant traits. Adam and Eve likely had a middle brown skin shade. Although skin shade is complex and the result of multiple genes, it is determined in part by the amount of a pigment called melanin. A middle brown shade indicates that the person has the genetic diversity to pass on either light or dark tones to their children. If Adam and Eve were both a middle brown shade, they could have had children of all shades, from dark to light. Men have fewer ribs than women have. God took one of Adam's ribs to make Eve, so now men have one fewer rib than women, right? Actually, no. We can easily count the number of ribs in men and women and see that they are the same. While it is true that God took a rib from Adam to fashion Eve, Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 to 22, he did not change Adam's DNA to do that. If a man lost a leg in an accident, would we expect his future children to be born without a leg? Of course not. Adam still had the genetic code for a full set of ribs, and he passed on that complete information to his sons and daughters alike. The second law of thermodynamics did not take effect until after the fall. The second law of thermodynamics states that closed systems tend toward increased entropy, or disorder. This law has led some to conclude that if things are running down, the second law of thermodynamics was not in effect until after the fall. After all, we can see the cumulative effects of increasing disorder caused by sin. However, such a conclusion assumes that all increased entropy is bad. In fact, entropy is responsible for many good things that happen every day. Digestion, sunlight, breathing, walking uphill, warming cooled skin. The second law of thermodynamics refers to the transfer of heat and energy. Therefore, this law has been in effect since creation. The Bible teaches geocentrism and a flat earth. Is earth the center of the universe? Is it flat? Some say that the Bible confirms both. But few biblical texts even remotely address geocentrism or a flat earth. And those references are examples of figurative language, poetic imagery, and idiomatic expressions, e.g. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 12, Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, and Psalm 93, verse 1. Since the Bible is not a cosmology textbook, we shouldn't insist on drawing cosmological meaning from these passages. We must read Scripture with discernment. Flat Earth proponents claim that early church leaders believed in a biblical flat Earth. However, humans have believed that the Earth is a sphere since at least the 5th century B.C. 
It wasn't until the late 19th century that skeptics claimed the Bible described a flat earth, blaming Christianity for hampering progress by rejecting scientific enlightenment. Likewise, some critics erroneously claim that the Catholic Church persecuted Galileo in the 17th century for believing that the earth revolved around the sun. In reality, the circumstances were far more complex. This allowed them to describe Christians as unenlightened geocentrists who opposed scientific discovery. Modern technology allows us to see the globe and monitor the movements of planets, and repeatable scientific observation has consistently supported a spherical Earth that revolves around the sun. The Bible does not teach that the Earth is flat, nor that it is the center of the universe, and no historical or scientific evidence supports either idea. The atmosphere was radically different before the flood. Both the fall and the flood significantly impacted the world, transforming it from the perfect earth into the groaning one we know today. But the Bible does not support the idea that the early atmosphere was radically different from that of the post-flood world. Many of these proposed atmospheric changes are tied to the canopy model, which places a layer of water around the earth on the second day of creation. Many researchers have abandoned the canopy model because of its pitfalls. Scientifically, the model can't explain the greenhouse effect of a vapor layer, the transparency of the canopy, the harmful effects of increased oxygen concentrations, or the amount of water necessary for a global flood. Biblically, the model is inconsistent. To assert that Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 to 7, describes a canopy of water above the expanse, the Earth's atmosphere, would mean that Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, places the stars, sun, and moon beneath the canopy, within the Earth's atmosphere. Therefore, the canopy model seems to be a misinterpretation of Scripture. The created Earth resembled what we see today. Imagine what the globe looked like before the catastrophic flood of Noah's day. You likely think of continents and oceans based on maps you've seen. But the world today is not the same as the world prior to the flood. The pre-flood world was destroyed by water, causing massive shifts and broken foundations. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 6. Genesis chapter 1, verse 9 implies that the original earth might have had one landmass. If you look at the continents and islands on the globe, you can see how all the land could fit back together like pieces in a puzzle. The geologic evidence is consistent with the biblical perspective of a single landmass violently ripped apart by a cataclysmic global flood. Rain and rainbows did not exist before the flood. Although Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 to 6, describes a period before rain fell, it refers only to the time before the creation of man. And Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, states that God warned Noah concerning events as yet unseen. This is not a reference to rain itself, but to a global catastrophic flood. As for rainbows, Genesis chapter 9, verse 13 does not teach that God created the first colorful bow after the flood, only that he assigned it as a symbol of his faithfulness. No one can prove that rain fell or rainbows graced the sky before the flood, but to insist that they did not stretches the meaning of Scripture. God created things to look old. God's creation was fully functional from the beginning. After all, plants had to bear fruit to provide sustenance. And if Adam and Eve were to obey God's mandate to multiply, they had to be able to reproduce. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. But a fully functional, mature universe is not the same as a universe created to look old. 
This misconception is based on two faulty assumptions. First, the concept of appearance of age is based on the human experience of aging. Before the first birth, humans had no frame of reference for determining how old someone looked. Likewise, we have no way to know what an old Earth would look like, since we don't know what a younger Earth looked like. Second, the misconception presupposes that the Earth looks old based on man's ideas about fallible dating methods, specifically in rock layers. Our culture is entrenched in evolutionary teaching that natural processes over millions of years produced the Earth we see today. But Scripture clearly teaches that the universe was created in six literal days. God is not a deceiver. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. So why would he create a world to appear older than it is? Again, the title of that article was Common Misconceptions About Creation. How many of those falsehoods have you heard before? It is so very important to have solid answers. Keep listening. There are a lot of misconceptions attributed to biblical creationists. That was evident from Bill Nye in his famous debate with Ken Ham. You can watch as Ken defends and proclaims the authority of the Bible in Uncensored Science, the Nye-Ham Debate, available on DVD and digital download at AnswersBookstore.com. Sometimes the smallest creatures, like the cockroach, are thoroughly misunderstood. We might think of them as creepy, but give me a couple of minutes. Sit back. You're going to love this article that's crawling with off-the-wall cockroach facts. Despite their bad reputation, cockroaches were designed to do good things. One day, when I was on my way to the shower, an adult, smoky brown cockroach sitting atop the bathroom door found itself in a freefall. Too surprised to use its wings, the roach managed to snag my skin just above the waistband on my right side. It sprinted halfway to my left side before I nabbed the beastie. After examining it closely, I said to myself, Ah, smoky brown cockroach. Had I encountered the roach prior to earning my master's degree in entomology, the study of insects, my response would have been considerably more dramatic. But because I had studied its intricacy, I could calmly assess the roach. Our first instinct is to recoil at cockroaches because of their creepy appearance, their tendency to spread disease and aggravate asthma, and, of course, their propensity to set up shop where we don't want them. But when we resist our revulsion and learn about these much-maligned insects, we find not malevolent fiends skulking in dark corners, but creatures equipped by God to perform a critical function in our fallen world. Someone's got to do it. Most of the 4,600 cockroach species are inoffensive omnivores, performing a vital ecological job on the Earth's cleanup crew. In the Garden of Eden, roaches probably did what they still do best, break down plant matter. But since Adam's fall brought sin and death into the world, roaches now also consume dead animal matter in habitats ranging from the Arctic to the tropics. But roaches do more than clean up the debris of death. Decaying matter holds nitrogen. After eating the refuse, roaches release that nitrogen into the soil through their feces, nourishing plants and trees. Not just another ugly face. The variety among cockroach species is astounding. Some species rival the beauty of butterflies, such as the black-and-white domino cockroach in India, the grass-green Cuban cockroach, and an Australian cockroach with blue legs and yellow stripes. 
Roaches also vary in size, from the brown-banded cockroach about the size of a penny to the Central American giant cave cockroach, measuring almost four inches long, built for survival. Despite such diversity, every cockroach species' body plan is quite similar. The jointed exoskeleton is supportive while remaining flexible and flat, allowing roaches to access small crevices where the best food crumbs hang out. The thorax has three segments. The upper surface of the first segment has a protective shield, pronatum, that overhangs the head like a hoodie, giving roaches a shifty, disreputable look. From their heads sprout long antennae covered with sensory receptors. They wave them about, constantly smelling and tasting their usual dark environment. Though we think of roaches as the ultimate dirty creatures, they routinely clean their antennae to keep their senses sharp. Poking from their posterior, a pair of short antennae-like extensions, cerci, are loaded with sensory receptors, particularly sensitive to air movement. When you enter a room, a roach can sense the puff of air and dive for cover in a fraction of a second. Most cockroaches move like air hockey pucks, making sharp turns without slowing down. Their six legs are designed for tremendous acceleration and speed on even vertical and inverted surfaces. Roaches have been clocked at 3.4 miles per hour. That's equal to a person running 210 miles per hour. Legends in their time. A flexible exoskeleton allows roaches to withstand pressure more than 900 times their own weight explaining how they can sometimes crawl away even after being stomped. They also don't easily drown. By closing the holes, spiracles, on their thorax and abdomen, roaches can hold their breath for up to 40 minutes, safely navigating watery habitats, such as your bathroom drain. But perhaps the real design superpower is their ability to adapt to whatever insecticides we throw at them. When scientists recently sequenced the genome of the German and American cockroach species, they found expanded genes dedicated to taste and smell, helping roaches avoid chowing down on many toxins. But even if roaches wind up consuming toxins, they can also cut, shuffle, and splice their genes to produce an array of detoxifying enzymes. As scavengers who consume refuse in unspeakably unsanitary conditions, it comes as no surprise that the roaches are also designed to concoct their own antibiotics to kill any pathogenic bacteria that they may ingest. In addition to all this, their digestive system contains bacteria that convert waste into nutrients. Why do we hate them? While around 30 cockroach species have carved a niche in human dwellings, only a handful are considered widespread pests. Nevertheless, the repugnant reputation of a few pest species have given the rest a bad name. But their unwanted presence is often our fault for not keeping a clean house. Should we expect roaches to turn down free food and lodging? Because nature and humans often clash in our fallen world, we should certainly practice dominion over these creatures by exterminating when we must. But rather than vilifying cockroaches, we should recognize that the Creator exquisitely equipped them to bring him glory. The next time you step on a cockroach in your house, remember, it might be in the wrong place at the wrong time, but it's the right creature for the job God gave it to do when it's in the right place. That article, entitled The Right Creature for the Job, was written by Gordon Wilson. He's also the narrator of the creation-affirming nature documentary, The Riot and the Dance. 
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed these articles, there are hundreds more at our website, AnswersMagazine.com. The links to today's articles are listed in our show notes, and I encourage you to subscribe to receive the magazine in your mailbox every other month. You will love that you're better able to share and defend your faith. I'm Dale Mason, publisher at Answers Magazine, and for the entire team, God bless. If you like the Creation Answers podcast, you'll love Answers Magazine. Subscribe for a full year of the print edition, and you'll automatically get access to the audio and digital versions of every issue as well. Right now, you can even save an extra 10%. Just enter the exclusive discount code PODCAST10 at AnswersMagazine.com. That's PODCAST10 at AnswersMagazine.com.